Episode four of Off Course with Claude Harmon, live from the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines, uh, one of the great golf courses in the U.S. Open Rota 2008. I think everybody remembers where they were when Tiger Woods won here, hobbling around on one leg. Certainly one of the best U.S. Opens, one of the best major championships. I think one of the best sporting events um, that anyone was able to watch. It's an iconic golf course. The weather, the views, small greens, Poana. You can get caught out by the draw. The fog can roll in this time of year. You kind of never know what you're going to get. I was around the golf course today, walking practice rounds, and the rough is is incredibly deep. I think whoever wins this week is going to need to drive their golf ball in play. This is not going to be a U.S. Open to where you can hit it offline. The only way I think you could get away with missing fairways here is if you hit it so far offline you, you somehow have a shot. But if you miss the fairway by three, four, five yards, you are going to struggle. So who is going to be the champion come Sunday? And Sunday also a special day as it's Father's Day. And so couldn't think of a better guest on Father's Day than to have my father, Butch Harmon. And it's always interesting for me to try and separate the dad versus the legend of coaching and, and instruction. Because in, in my opinion, you know, certainly if there is a Mount Rushmore of, of golf instruction, my dad is on it. Um, I think he's the best in the world. I think he's the greatest of all time. And I say that because if you look at all of the players that he has worked with, all of the players that he has helped win major championships, you know, they've all kind of swung differently. Greg Norman, Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, Adam Scott, Stuart Singh, Darren Clark, Dustin Johnson, Gary Woodland, everybody has, has been different. And I think that's one of the reasons why he has been so successful is that he's been able to try and navigate all of these different types of players. His philosophy is um, there isn't a system, there isn't one way to swing the golf club. He believes that the best way to help players perform is to to take what they do naturally and and try and make that better. I don't think he's ever been one to try and change what a player does naturally. And and he's not an aesthetic person. He's never been one that really is is worried about style. If you look at Dustin Johnson in 2021 and you look at the way Dustin Johnson swings the golf club with kind of that bowed left wrist and kind of the club face being shut. And a lot of people, when Dustin Johnson turned pro back in 2007, 2008, thought that he would need to change that golf swing. And and my dad never changed that golf swing. He took what DJ did and, and made it better. And now in 2021, kind of getting your left wrist into that position, getting the club a little bit shut at the top. I think he was a pioneer in a lot of things, you know, before he started working with Tiger Woods. I don't think anybody thought about working the club a little bit more in front of the body, trying to have the arms and and golf club work more than um, in match what the body was. And I think he was very lucky to be around at a time to where he got to work with two players almost back-to-back, Greg Norman in the early 90s and then meeting Tiger Woods. So they had tremendous speed in their body and rotation. You know, I had a ringside seat to kind of watch how he worked with players, you know, specifically Greg and Tiger, and how do you manage all of that speed? How do you manage the different body parts? How do you manage, you know, syncing up the arms to the body Um, Obviously, I think he's legendary for the work that he did with Tiger Woods. The changes that Tiger underwent in 1993 to what he did in 2000. A lot of people think Tiger Woods swung the golf club the best when he worked with, you know, my dad. um, I think, you know, they did great work. I'm I'm biased because I got to see a lot of it um, and, and to watch the changes that they made. And then to watch him work with all of these other players, all the majors that he's helped players um, win. But I think what I'm most proud of when I think about my dad, and and it's going to be Father's Day on Sunday, he sacrificed so much of his own life to help other people achieve their dreams and their goals. If you look at all of the things that he helped Tiger Woods accomplish, if you look at a a young kid like Adam Scott, if you look at all of the, the mentoring he did in Adam's early career, if you look at the work that he did with Phil Mickelson later, kind of in the middle of Phil Mickelson's career to win the majors that they did, um, he is a straight shooter. You are always going to get a straight answer. 
Um, and I'm living proof that sometimes those are answers that you might not want to hear. But I think everybody that's been lucky enough to work with my dad and come in contact with him is, is he is a true original. There isn't really anyone else like him. He exudes confidence. And the other thing I will say about my dad in the vein of all of the great coaches from Vince Lombardi to Bobby Knight to Bill Belichick to Nick Saban, um, he's a winner. He, is, he has helped players dominate the the modern game of golf and you know to come from the background that he did with his father being a masters champion in 1948 all of the pressure that that he had to endure and being Claude Harmon's son you know I I I certainly um, know what that's like because for a large part of my life and my career and and a lot of people to this day still think I'm Butch Harmon's son and and I think he has forged a very unique path. Um, he's been an unbelievable broadcaster over in the UK. He's been with Sky Sports and commentated on pretty much every major and every Ryder Cup for the last 25 years. And he has been one of the voices of, of golf in the UK. And, and it's funny, every year when we go over to the Open Championship, I think I see him sign more autographs when he's at St. Andrews, Carnoustie, Troon, Royal Lytham. He's a cult figure in golf in the UK. And, you know, People just love him, and, and his his takes on golf, his takes on life, his one-liners, his wit, his humor, um, he is a force of nature. And um, I think that along with David Ledbetter, to me, the two of them have changed the way everybody in the game thinks about instruction and coaching. Um, and I think that it, if it wasn't for you know, my dad and the work that he did with Tiger Woods, if it wasn't for the pioneering work that that David Ledbetter did with Nick Faldo, you know, I don't think, you know, I would have the role that I do have, you know, at this stage of my life. So um, he's got great takes. Uh, he, he talks about Tiger Woods. He talks about his life. He talks about what he likes about golf, what he doesn't like about golf. And it is a fascinating podcast, but it's also really, really um, special for me to, to get an opportunity. You know, I'm 52 years old. My dad will turn 78 and in, in August and and for me to sit down and get to spend time with him and, and kind of pick his brain and interview him and, and talk to him I think it was a special moment for him it was a special moment for me and I think it's um, hopefully something everybody will enjoy listening to the legend that is Butch Harmon enjoy it and it's been about over a year since you and I've seen each other how has the uh the lockdown, the pandemic, what what have you been doing at home? Just playing a lot of golf? Uh, we shut down a year ago, March. I think we were one of the first businesses to shut down in Vegas uh, as soon as it, it came out. And uh, oh, I really haven't done a lot. We haven't gone anywhere. We haven't really traveled any. This is my first venture out. Yeah, just kind of hanging out, reading a lot of books, relaxing. It's kind of nice not to do anything. And you've been playing a ton of golf? I was, yeah. You would have never known how I played yesterday. My gosh, it was terrible. But yeah, maybe I'm over golfed. <laughs> do you still do you still love going out and playing? Do you still oh, yeah. want to get better? Oh yeah, I, I mean, I get very irritated when I don't hit good shots. I mean, I, I know I'm 77 years old. I know that, you know, my handicap at home is a five, and you know, so it frustrates me when I. For me, I just want to have fun. I want to have a good time. But I also am competitive enough. If I can break 80, I feel pretty good about that at my age. You know, and yesterday I couldn't do that, so today I'm doing it, damn it. <laughs> if you could design that a golfer, if you could start from scratch and design a golfer that would become a great player, what are the attributes that you would design for a, a player that could be, you know, an elite, an elite golfer and an elite competitor? That's simple. Tiger Woods. <laughs> Just be Tiger Woods. <laughs> have God give you all the talent in the world and have a work ethic that's beyond belief and have ice water in your veins. I think you look at someone who's athletic, flexible, uh, has the desire to always improve, never never be happy with where they are. Uh, someone that uh, is willing to accept the challenge of change if he needs it, which is a unique thing at that level. And then you got to have a great short game. I mean, you could be a great ball striker with no short game. You're not going to be a good player. You could be an average ball striker with a really good short game, and you're going to be a really good player. So there's a huge mix in it. The, the difference between the great ones and the really good ones is mental. It's not physical. They're all physically capable of playing. 
And when I say mental, it's how they handle pressure, pressure situations. Do they understand their adrenaline flows? Do they understand their nervous system? Do they have a caddy that's willing to back them off a shot if the wind switches and they will listen to them? Uh, your cub selection under the heat of the battle, do you make the right choices? Uh, know your strengths, know your weaknesses, and always try and make your weaknesses strength. That's one thing I loved about Tiger Woods in all the 10 years I worked with him. He wasn't a very good wedge player, wasn't a very good pitcher of the ball. He wasn't and, a good bunker player when, but, when he and he, was, and he was terrible, and he worked so hard on it, he became really good at all of them. So I think it's a mental side of it is, it is important, and that doesn't mean you have to see a sports psychologist or anything. You can figure it out. You, you, you know how to think. It's just some people handle it so much differently, and it looks simple the way they do it. You know, are they are they uptight? Are they nervous? Are they anxious? Sure, everybody is. But the the good ones look like a duck going across the water. It just looks like so smooth that underneath the water, the dog things are going like that. And so that's really the difference between great ones and good ones. It's mentally how strong they are, how they handle the, the tough situations. Do you think uh, players that are trying to compete um, at the elite level um, always think it's technique that's the issue and don't focus on the execution part of it? I think it seems that way in this day and age. They've got too damn many coaches. They've got a coach for a driver coach, an iron coach, a wedge coach, a putting coach. I think they have too much of that going on. There's Sometimes there's too much information, and it, it can clog your brain up. Uh, golf is still just a pretty simple game. You're just trying to put a, a number in a box. There's no pictures on the scorecard, how you do it. Consistency is a big thing. You look at guys that are consistently good all the time. Those are the ones you should try and copy. Um, you know, but everybody, I think, in this day and age, we've gone to analytics. We've gone to all the launch monitors, all the video, all of that stuff. So there's a lot of information, and information is good. Don't get me wrong. But too much information isn't good. It gets in the way of what you're doing. Well, let's take the guy we've worked with for so long, Dustin Johnson. He was a... He was a very aggressive driver. His line was, hey, I'm just sending it, bro. You know, DJ, you may want to hit a three-wood or two off this. You know, I'm sending it, bro. And then he finally bought into the way I wanted him to hit the fade off the tee, which made him one of the best drivers in the world. He's still long. And he lives with how long he is. He doesn't get caught up in the DeChambeau thing. i got to hit it farther. He's very happy with how far he hits it. But DJ now has matured as a golfer. He's, his, his golf IQ, he's a genius. And if you watch him, the sender bro's gone. He only sends it if it's required. He'll hit a three wood. He carries a seven wood in the bag. He'll hit an iron off a tee. He, he's learned how to really get the best out of his game. And I think that's a lot of it that a lot of some of the younger ones haven't figured out yet. And if, you, if they watch the guys that are really good and watch what they do when they play with them under pressure, you can learn from them. You can see, well, why? this is why the guy's number one in the world. Look at how he handled this situation. I would have done that differently. And so it's all a learning process. You know, if you look at DJ in his early part of his career, I think a lot of people thought that, you know, the attitude was that he didn't care, that he, he wasn't smart, that you know, he wasn't a thinker. And I think now, you know, after the Masters last year, all of a sudden people are starting to talk about his brain and, and the way he thinks. And I, I've been saying this you know, ever since the Masters. I think other than maybe Nicholas and Tiger, I think Ty, uh, DJ's got one of the best minds in the history of the sport, just because of the way that he doesn't allow things that have happened to bother him mm -hmm. and, and things, he's not looking around the corner either. And I think it's a really unique quality that he has, and, that, and I think people are just starting to see it. Well, like I said a minute ago, his golf IQ, he's a genius. But he's a laid-back guy. Yeah. I mean, that's how he is. You watch how he walks, he never really seems to be in a hurry and he's a very fast player except when he gets on the greens and he's ridiculously slow <laughs> so it's a very interesting I actually think he's too slow at the moment I think if he'd speed up his putting routines a little and not take so much time uh, he'd probably putt a little better but he's a streaky putter not a bad putter some guys just putt good all the time you know there aren't many people like Jack and Tiger that just putted good for year after year but DJ when he putts good you can't beat him one thing I'll say about Dustin Johnson that impresses me, and I've, I've been involved with him now for almost 12 years. If he's on, if he's on his game, no one can beat him. If they were all on, 
And Dustin Johnson was 100%. You can't beat it. Even Rory right now. When Rory's no. firing on all cylinders, you think DJ I, I act, And that's not a put down to Rory because he's a phenomenal player. But DJ, I think, when he's on, because of the confidence he has in his ability, and you know I, I kid all the time when people say, what makes DJ so good? I said, well, it's very simple. He takes his balls to the first tee in a wheelbarrow. <laughs> he's not afraid of anything. He's not afraid of any shot. He's not afraid to try the right shot, even though it's a difficult shot. He likes the challenge. And I think that's what sets him aside from most of the others. Last year when he was on that run in the FedEx Cup and then the Masters, is that some of the best golf you've seen, you know, really anybody play? Well, Tiger in 2000 was the yeah. best golf I've ever seen. The guy won nine times, three majors. I mean, it's, it's, he hit 72% of his fairways. He was the second longest hitter in the game. Short game was phenomenal. I mean, the guy was amazing how good he was. But DJ, I, I say this all the time, Dustin Johnson, when he's on, is the closest thing I've seen to Tiger Woods. The difference is Tiger Woods was on for 20 years. <laughs> That's why he's a, he and Jack Nichols are the two greatest players that ever lived. When you look back at you know the time that you spent with Tiger, um, you know what are some of the, the, the things that you're your memories and, and thoughts that stand out to you. Obviously, all the success and stuff, but there there, there must be other things that, that you look back on and you say, wow, that was really something cool to be a part of. His work ethic, the first thing. His, his desire to always improve, never to be satisfied. If he shoots 60, I should have shot 57. You know, and some people would say, well, that's an arrogant thing. No, that's how he thinks. Remember when he came out, that interview he had with Curtis Strange a zillion years ago when he was just a rookie, they were playing the Skins game in Palm Springs, and he asked him, you know, what are your anticipations? He goes, I want to win. I, I, I come to win. A second sucks. I, I just want to win. And, and Curtis said, you know, rightfully so, well, you'll learn. That's a pretty arrogant thing. And then after he went on, Curtis said, yeah, I learned. <laughs> That's what he does. He wants to win. And Tiger, Tiger got criticized for it. He got criticized. He would win a tournament because, yeah, I only had my C game. Yeah, C but game. I, I And he wasn't trying to be a dick about it or anything. That was just how he thought. And as he got older and matured, he, he stopped saying that. But that's how he felt. And, you know, you have to appreciate his honesty. But his work ethic was unbelievable. Uh, Greg Norman's work ethic was unbelievable when I worked with him. But Tiger, I'd never seen anybody work as hard as Tiger did. He, and he always wanted to get better. You know, when he was younger, when he would play in majors as the amateur champion, and even after he turned pro, I would always arrange for him to play golf at practice rounds with the former major champions. And he would just, I said, ask him anything you want. These guys will tell you. And he spent so much time with Ballesteros and, and Oathabel trying to learn the short game because he couldn't spin the ball. And I'd take him over where Ollie was because I think he spins the ball better than anybody. And I said, just, just talk to him. I said, I'll go away. You, you guys just have a little conversation. And Jose would, you know, would explain to him how he'd do things. Then Tiger would have to put his own take on it. And I think everything I taught him in the short game it came from Seve, Jose Maria, and Greg Norman. They were the three. This is long before I worked. And they with, all kind of taught each other. They, they, that was long before I worked with Phil, whose short game is phenomenal too. But then everything I taught them, I, I, him, I learned from them. Then he had to put his own take on it, his own way of doing it and stuff. But he had that, that memory bank of watching the best ones do it, and that's how you learn. You watch guys that are really good. And if you're a very serious person, even at the amateur level at home, if you're one of the best players in your club, watch somebody who's really good and watch what they do and how they do it day in and day out and learn from that. You know, when your dad played and when you played the tour, you, you were just saying there's, there's so much more of, of the, the coaching role that you and I do with tour players when when your dad played and when you played it was the other players that were the coaches right you yeah. go and you'd ask another player as opposed to going and asking an instructor that the the story about your dad at the at, at wingfoot in the u.s open where he got in the bunker with carrie middlecoff and what did hogan tell him well they were playing a practice round and my dad was one of the greatest bunker players ever lived still to this day the best i've ever seen you know, Gary Player gets a lot of credit for it, but Dad was amazing. I mean, he, he was just, and my brother Dick was right there with him. He was good, too. Uh, he and Mr. Hogan played all their practice rounds together. They were best of friends. Uh, they were playing the seventh hole on the West Coast, the practice round before the 59 USO, very deep bunker. And Middlecoff was in there. He'd won major championships, held a player. And he couldn't get out. I mean, he must have made five. I was there. I was, a, I think, a... a 
what was I, a freshman in high school then or something. And I was there watching his practice round. He must have left it in five or six times. And my dad started to go into the bunker, and he said to Mr. Hogan, he says, Ben, ben Carey's terrible in the bunker. I better go help him. And Ben Hogan said, leave him alone, Claude. He may never learn, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was a great line. What was it like being around, you know, people like that when you were younger? Because, you know, as someone that's in their 50s, you know, I never saw Ben Hogan. I never, you know, I only know what I see on TV and in books and stuff like that. What, what was he like, and and what what did you notice as, for him as a player? Well, he's the greatest ball striker of all time. Really? I never saw anybody that could control the ball through the air, and he was probably one of the smartest players that ever played until Nicholas came along. Uh, he he was so smart, Claude, and he his shot selections were so good. Whatever shot he was trying to play, he knew that if he didn't hit it correctly, it would miss on the proper side, meaning he'd never short side himself. He'd have an easy pitch or an easy bunker shot. He was a very misunderstood person. He was an introvert. He didn't feel comfortable around a lot of people. If you were his friend, he was phenomenal to be around. I mean, we were fortunate because my dad was his best friend. I played, I think I played my my first time I played with him when I was 16, probably the most nervous I've ever been in my and life. he would have been how old then? He was a little past his prime in those days, but, but still, still played good. Still flushed it. And, you know, he just, he didn't feel comfortable around a, pe- a lot of people, so he came off kind of as an asshole, you know, because he wasn't going to give anybody the time of day. But if you were in his inner circle and he knew you and liked you, he couldn't have been nicer I mean, my gosh, when he came to visit my mom when she was dying in the hospital, he was the most humble person. Uh, I know when my dad had his heart problems and he was in bad shape, he got in his car and drove down to Houston. Dad was in Houston, spent a day with him in the hospital. And he says, look, Claude, you're too tough to die. Don't you lay here and die on me, damn it. You fight this thing. And, And Dad lived another three or four months, and I really think it was because of that conversation with Ben Hogan. He said, you're a damn fighter, Claude. You fight this thing. Don't you lay down and die. You're too young to, to lay down and die. He was an unbelievable die. competitor. Oh, no, maybe the best. You know, and, and we talk about Tiger Woods coming back from all the back surgeries he had to win the, the Masters in, in 2019. Fantastic thing. You know, greatest comeback in golf. No, Ben Hogan went one-on-one with a Greyhound bus. Are you kidding me? He got hit head-on by a Greyhound bus. The only thing that saved his life was he dove over in front of his wife, Valerie, at the last second, because where the steering wheel was, it ended up in the back seat. It just would have crushed him to death. And they told him he'd never walk again, you know. And and they came back within a few years, and, and one kept winning. He actually came back a better player. He used to be a big hooker of the ball, and he came back learning how to fade the ball to control it better. And my father was the same way. He was a big hooker of the ball, and the more he played with Hogan, the more he became a fader, just, just for control, not because he thinks it's, a, you know, you can play either way, don't get me wrong. But Ben Hogan, he was amazing. He was so good to myself and my brothers and my family. Uh, Dad tells a great story. He was such a perfectionist. You know, you hear the story when he first started the Ben Hogan Company and they put in all these millions of dollars. And the first run of all the clubs that came out, he didn't like them. He said, we got to cut them up and throw them away. <laughs> and, and the investors, the, the guy, I can't remember the guy, that, the guy from Fort Worth was a big guy that put all the money in. He said, well, let's just go sell it. No, we're not putting this out there with my name on it. He said, if it has my name on it, it has to be perfect. And they made a club back in the days called the Radial. Hogan Raider had a big round sole on the bottom of it. My dad kind of liked that because he believed having bounce on iron so it would skid through the ground better. And dad said he was sitting in Ben's office in Fort Worth and he had this iron on the, on the thing. And dad was picking it up and he, he was looking at it, you know, like this. And he, he said to, to, to Mr. Hogan, Ben, I really like this iron. I like this, this round sole. And Mr. Hogan says, no, I hit the ball on the other side, but I don't know why I worry about that. <laughs> what, um, we always hear about his ball striking. What was his short game and, and putting? Because obviously he must have had, he must have been a pretty good putter in the short game. Well, and, unless you're old and saw him play when he was good, when he got older, he had the yips. I mean, he putted so bad, poor guy. He, he just lost it. And that's all you remember if you're not old enough, to, like somebody like I am, it's sneaking up on 80, that saw him play. He was a hell of a putter. He was long, hit the ball a long way. Really? Long way. Very all the speed with long the driver. You know, until I saw Tiger Woods, as uh, you remember when he came to Lockenbar in, in uh, what was it? 93. 93. We still have the, the film yeah. of it. 
Ben Hogan had the fastest unwind of a torso I'd ever seen. Well, if you think about how flat his swing was and how neutral his grip was, where he was coming from, he had to get his hips out of the way to square the club. And when I saw Tiger Woods, that was the next person I'd ever seen that had that fast a body rotation. I can remember the first few times, I said, wow, look at the way he clears on this thing. That's, that's really good. It was something a lot of people don't do, something I can't do at all anymore because my hips are so damn bad. You said that, you know, obviously you read Hogan's book, tried to kind of model that, and then Jack came out with Golf My Way, and you tried to model that. Sure. It's, it's been interesting how over the course of the years, you know, I think, you know, Jack and and Ben, you know, they they changed a generation of the way golfers played in the same way that the post-Tiger era where Tiger came out and then everybody yeah. tried to do that. Um, you, did you get to spend a lot of time with Jack Nicklaus? No, really haven't spent You played that. with him uh, when you were on tour? Nope, never got paired with him. I've known Jack forever. My whole life, I admire him. He's a, he and I, as I say all the time, you can't say one's better than the other. Jack's probably the greatest champion of all time. The guy won 18 majors, 19 seconds, Claude. 18 wins, 19 seconds, and I think it's like 13 or 14 thirds. The guy could have won 40 majors. I mean, there's not, there was no champion better than Jack. What, ma what made him, in your opinion, so good? Well, first of all, the God-given talent. He was really long when he came out. He was the longest. He hit the ball a freaking mile with a persimmon driver and a softball. But he had a, he, he had a great mind for golf. He, he, he's the first one that, that came up with the yardage books. He started stepping off courses himself and, and getting numbers, where in the old days you just saw it and you hit it and you played. He, he was so smart when he played. I mean, if he used to say that he thought majors were the easiest tournaments to win. He says, if, take the Masters, for example. This year they had 88 players in it. He would tell you that, look, there's 88 players, but there's so many amateurs, there's so many former champions, there's so many first-timers. These guys don't have a chance. So that eliminates half the field. Then the other half of that half is going to talk themselves out of it, and they're not going to be able to play. And he said, and I just play good, I'll win. And he would get the lead in a major, and he knew if he made 18 pars, it was going to be hard for someone to beat him because they had to press. And once they started uh, making birdies and pressing, he would just take it up a notch and make a birdie and win. Now, Tiger's mentality is different. If he had a three-shot lead, he wanted to beat you by seven. He, he was one of those, he was like a, he just wanted to take you out. He, he just wanted to beat you. So they had two different mindsets. Nicholas was just so smart and so good at what he did. He hit the most beautiful long irons. I've never, hit it really high. I've never seen a guy hit one and two irons as high as he did, and they carry so far. Today you see the ball go more penetrate through the air he could launch this thing up in the air so high and he had so much control if jack had a weakness and i would say it, it would be when i say weakness I, I need to preface that it wasn't that he was bad he wasn't the best wedge player and pitcher in the game he wasn't the worst either but he just wasn't the best at it and i think the difference between he and tiger is tiger really didn't have a weakness you know he, he was good in every department and and but Jack could play around that too. You know, guys that aren't real good at certain shots, they'll play around them. You know, I mean, and okay, I'm not very good on 30 and 40 and 50 yard wedge shots. I don't give myself any. I make sure I got a 90 yard shot or 110 yard shot. One of the things that, that, that I've been, yeah, that I've noticed over the years on being on tour and, and that I've tried to talk to people about is, like you said, you know, Jack knew what his weakest were and played around them. And, and it's something that I believe strongly that to be a great player, you have to have a strength. You have to be great at something, whether it's ball striking, short game, putting, it could be green reading, it could be into the wind. But yet in order to be really, really an elite player, you have to be great at something. Well, you have to know your strengths and your weaknesses, and you have to know what you really can do, and you have to know what you can't do. And your weakness, you work at it to try and make it better. But in a tournament, if you if you have certain shots you're not very good at, you don't try and hit them. You know, you'll dump the if you say you can't hit a big high fade to a back right pin because you draw the ball predominantly, dump it in the middle of the green. You know, go when your practice sessions keep trying to hit that. You'll learn how to hit it. You're good. They're all good. But know your strengths, know your weaknesses, know what you're really good at, know what you're not real good at, and, and, and work around that. How do you think players can get better at the playing side of the game? Because I think most golfers that are trying to play competitively to try and compete on you know, junior golf, high school golf, college golf, trying to get to the tour, 
they they think it's my technique's got to get better. My tech, I mean, everybody's technique can get better. Yeah. I mean, the best players in the world today are trying to hit it better and, and make better swings and work on their swing. But how do you think you go about playing the game better? I think they get too wrapped up in technique and forget about playing. I think you should play more and practice less. Uh, we don't see that as much anymore. Did People, you play more when you were a kid? Yeah, I, I, well, I like to practice because I like to beat balls, but I, I, I still today like to play. I mean, I don't, I don't practice at all anymore. I may hit 15 shots to warm up before I go play or something. I'll go, go over in a bunker and hit some bunker shots and chips and stuff, but I just like to play. And, you know, at my age, I'm not very good, but I, I like trying to hit the right shot. You know, just I, I had some yesterday in this little event we're playing in the pro member. You know, the pin was in a back right corner and there was a 180 yard shot. And then I said, well, I'm just going to hit a nice high little cut four iron in there and hit a pull hook in the left bunker. You know, I wasn't very happy about it. And the language wasn't very good afterwards, but I was trying to do it because that's for me, that's the fun of playing golf. I've always been a pretty good putter, so I can always make putts. But it's just the fun of trying to hit the right shot. And, and the older you get, and if you're not going to work on it, it's pretty hard to do it. But I'm still trying to do it. But do you think going out and playing and keeping score and not – because I see so many players that they, they go to the golf course to practice. Yeah. You know, the range is where you practice. And they go out on the golf course. And you and I have talked about this. You, you, you're working with a young kid. And had you play the other day? Well, you know, I didn't play really good on the on the first couple, so I just started hitting a couple balls and I practiced. And you just want to see you go to the range to practice, right? You, you play well, dad, on the our dad course. used to tell us. He says, "Look, get in the habit of shooting a score. You know, find out what you're shooting. Don't give yourself every three footer because you're going to have some. But just put them out. It doesn't take long to do it. Have a little match, even if you're only playing for two bucks or five bucks. Have a match. Have have every shot mean something when you're playing. If you're gonna, if you're just gonna practice." Uh, if you like me, I live on a golf course. If I was just going to practice, I go out in the evening and just play nine holes and hit two or three balls a hole. That's kind of to me how I practice. Right. But if you're really trying to be competitive and get better at what you're doing, you better understand what you're shooting. What's your score? What do you, what'd you shoot today? Oh, uh, you know, I don't know. I'd, I guess if I had to put it out, I'd have been around. What do you mean you guess? If you put it out, you don't have a score. Yeah, because the, but then when you go to a tournament, all of a sudden you haven't yeah. been putting everything out. Well, look look at the club level. The guys play, guys I play with, i got about six guys I play with every Friday and Saturday, and they're kicking back five-footers and four-footers. <laughs> Pick and it up. Footers. You know what the heck? I don't care. We're playing for five bucks if that's where you want to play. But then they get in the club championship with a member guest, and they got to hit make those putts. They can't make them because yeah. they're so getting darn nervous. Oh, shit, I haven't had to ever putt one a four-footer. Yeah, well, you better make one. I had a putt yesterday on the first hole. I missed the green to the left and hit the most beautiful pitch shot because the green's here at the Florida Inners. And it went, I'd say it was two and a half, three feet. Right center putt. You know, so I just was trying to hit a little firm. And this ball did a 360 degrees. It went in the right side, and it came out on the right side. It went literally all the way around. And I'm standing there stunned, like, what just happened? How did that ball not go in the hole? So you never know. So putt the doggone things. Putt out. Get a real score. You've probably, like most people, been watching a ton of golf, you know, during the lockdown and the mm -hmm. pandemic. What do you... What do you like about where the professional game on the PGA Tour is today and what don't you like? The quality of the players is unbelievable and how many of them are so good. You know, it used to be, say, back in my era, I played the Tour 69, 70, 71. And quite honestly, I can say I played the Tour, but I wasn't very good. You know, I, in those days, you couldn't make a lot of money anyway. And I think the fact that there are so many good players, it's unbelievable. That's the plus side. The downside is there's so many players that make a lot of money that never win. And I mean million a year, million and a half a year, never win a tournament. I think golf should be about winning. That's what we play for. Winning is, is everything. You, we see guys, and you see that, the good ones coming down the stretch will try a shot that maybe is iffy whether they can pull it off or not, but they're trying to win. They're, they're not trying to win a, a check. They're not trying to finish fifth they're trying to finish first and i see guys because of the amount of money sometimes all right i don't have a chance to win but i don't want to make a bogey i might you know if i, I might miss a top 10 uh, yeah or... yeah i might finish 11th instead of 10 so i'm going to be conservative and that part i don't like i like seeing guys that are aggressive that are always trying to win always trying to shoot the lowest score they can i, I like the guy that goes out 
six behind. So I don't know, shoot 63 today. And he'll, he'll shoot 64 or five because he's freewheeling and he goes for it. But the talent level is incredible. And it, it's a product of the, of, of the great college system, of a great junior golf, of great teaching. All, all PGA pros are good instructors now. They, they come up, they learn how to teach. And so everybody's a product of that. The overkill is too much uh, technical stuff and, and not enough just natural playing stuff. But they find the medium in there somehow. When you look at this young crop of players like right now on the PGA Tour, whose golf swings, you know, from a swing standpoint, do you really, really like? Well, you like anything that's repetitive and works. You know, you can look at Matt Wolf and you say, well, heck, I'm never going to swing like that. Well, it works pretty darn good for him. Uh, I like uh, Shoffley's swing. I like Victor Hovland's swing a lot. Uh, I like Corey Connors' swing. Uh, I just like to watch a swing that's very repetitive that creates a certain shape of shot, and, they, and they, they're good at playing it. Uh, everyone thinks there's a perfect swing. There is no perfect swing. There's no such thing. If you, and I would uh, tell all of your listeners, if you're ever in the St. Augustine area in Florida, go to the World Golf Hall of Fame because, first of all, it's a fascinating place. I, every time I, I would go to the uh, Players' Championship, I'd try and go down there and just walk around there for hours because they got all video of all the greatest players. You'll see some of the worst-looking swings you've ever seen in your life, and these guys were good. Why? Because they could do the same thing every time. There is no perfect swing. I mean, I used to have, in my 10 years with Tiger Woods, every time someone came to my academy in Vegas, they said, I want to swing like Tiger Woods. I said, no kidding, I want to swing like Tiger Woods. But unless we can get in his body, we can't do that. So understand your own body. Watch players that have your body type number one because they're your size and your shape you can see what they're doing and maybe copy some of the things they're doing but you got to have your own you have to have your own swing and you got to own your own swing and just understand what that swing is and you'll be fine and i think there's a big difference between what a swing looks like and and if a swing is functional and i think we're kind of you know it's been cool to see matt wolf kind of come out because all of a sudden we're seeing someone who's you know, not looks like Adam Scott to where everything's yeah. perfect. If you look at, yeah. you know, a kid that's been playing really good since he's turned pro, Scotty Scheffler with his Absolutely. unique footwork and stuff, but it works and it works every time. And I think there are so many, as you said, there's so many great players in the Hall of Fame who, yeah, I mean, Ernie Ellis has a beautiful golf swing sure. and, you know, has a yeah, beautiful I mean, uh, look, look at this way, Claude. Uh, to me, the second best ball striker I've ever seen is Lee Trevino. Hogan's first, Trevino's first. Hogan and Trevino have unusual swings. Yeah. I mean, you try and swing like they did, you, you're probably not going to play and very good. it's funny good. that, you know, I think it was your Uncle Billy that said this, and he said, you know, it's two of the best ball strikers. Your Uncle Billy. <laughs> He's my brother. <laughs> but he always said, you know, some of the best ball strikers he saw, Trevino, hit draws, open stance, took it outside, dropped it under, and then a guy like Hale Irwin, who was closed, yeah. took it inside, came over it, and hit fades. And he always said, it's amazing that we don't try and teach anyone to swing like that. We're all trying to teach everyone to have perfect backswings, perfect positions. But some of the best winners and ball strikers had kind of unique, yeah. unorthodox. And it's funny that, that we don't try and teach players to, to play like that. Well, Trevino was a fader. He hit everything fade, but he could hit draws. You know, everybody said, well, he couldn't hit a draw. That's bullshit. He's Lee Trevino, for gosh sake. He won a bunch of majors. He has to hit draws. But his natural swing, he'd aim way left. Yeah, and he'd, he'd take it kind of out, drop it under, and he hit a push fade. He just pushed the ball out there so it would go a little to the right. But if he had to hit a low draw in the wind or something, he could hit it. All great players can hit it both ways. It goes back to what we said earlier, play, play more. Get out on the course and play. Realize how to shoot a score. Get Play when it's uh, – we used to tell junior golfers, you know this, one day play with only odd number of clubs, one day play with even number of clubs. Learn how to hit shots. Everybody just thinks, oh, I have to hit the right number. And You, you, you look at tour players when they shoot 61, 2, 3, or 4. They will tell you I had a right number every time. I guess what does that mean? That means that he had the number of most of his iron shots were just a stock eight iron or stock six iron. Then you go out other days and you never have the right number. You're always in between clubs. Okay, is this a hard seven or do I hit a smooth six? Do I go down a shaft on this? So for the youngsters and, and even amateurs at the club, one day play with all even number of clubs, one day play with all not, odd number of clubs. You'll learn how to play. My dear friend, Jose Maria Olothaba, who, who I just admire so much, had the right idea. He said, you know, with this modern technology, everybody says they should change the ball and everybody hits it too far. And, this. He, goes, and he, he said, and you know how Ali talks, he goes, Bush, Bush, I tell you something. 
You no need to change the ball at the club, okay? Here's what you do. You go from 14 clubs to nine clubs. Aha! We find out who can play golf because you got to hit shots. And so that's how you learn to hit shots. Don't have the right club. Take take another one and stuff. Where do you come down on the, the distance debate right now? There's a big group of people that think, you know, what Bryson's doing, the golf ball's going too far, the golf courses are going to have to change, the governing bodies are going to have to roll back equipment. What do you think? Well, the ball's not going to change. The manufacturers have got hundreds of millions of dollars tied up in tooling to make these balls. The lawsuits would be astronomical for the USGA. What Bryson's doing is amazing. It works for Bryson. Now, I don't, I don't see what he's doing as a longevity thing. I, I, I think it's for You don't think he can now. do it for the next 10 years? Well, I don't think his body will let him. I don't, I don't see how anybody's spine is geared to swing that hard. Now, I hope and I'm wrong because I don't want to see the poor kid hurt himself. I think what he's done is phenomenal. He's figured out what works for him. Uh, doesn't, it's not going to work for everybody. That's, that's for darn sure. As we, we, you know, DJ just said, let him hit as far as he wants. I'm just going to hit mine the way I hit it. And I was surprised to hear Rory come out and said it kind of affected him that he tried that because Rory's one of the most beautiful drivers I've ever seen and very long. You know, and he has a swing that's geared. And Scotty was the same Adam way. Scott told me in, at, at the Honda, I was walking a practice round with him, and he said he hadn't really been hitting it that good. And I just kind of looked at him. I said, when do you really hit it bad? And he said, well, you know, I tried to get the ball way forward and hit up on it to try and hit a little yeah. bit further. And then it, it really messed up with my iron swing and stuff like that. So it's been interesting to see that what Bryson has done has affected the way some of the best players in the world have, you know, Rory trying to chase distance. I mean, he already hits at miles. Yeah, the problem I have with technology is the average club player, which is the bulk of the people that play golf, don't have the club head speed to take advantage of any of the new technology. The tour players, they're the best players in the world. They don't need the technology. They don't need all this stuff. The guy who can't break 90, he's the guy who needs some help, or he can't drive it 200 yards. He but he doesn't have a swing fast enough to take advantage of the technology. So it's kind of a fine line. What do we do? I'm of the belief that the PGA Tour, European Tour, should have their own rules. So you think professional Where golf should we, have? We are the only professional sport that is governed by amateur rules. The NFL football is a different size than the college football. The, the, the rules are different. Uh, NBA versus college basketball, different three-point lines, uh, different uh, Metal keys. bats and baseball. Yeah, so we're the only sport in the world playing under amateur rules. If you wanted to, to change that, the tour could adapt to rule. They don't have to change the equipment. They could l limit the length of a driver, for example. They could get rid of this stupid putting rule that you can't anchor the thing. What, this arm lock's not an anchor? That's more of an anchor than the long But Get rid of that. If all that was so good, we'd all putt that way. Who cares about all that? Get rid of this little strange dropping of the golf ball we do. I mean, let's place the damn thing. Let's get on with it. But the tour can make their own rules. They could govern how fast a ball comes off of the club face. They could govern the length of a driver could only be so far. Uh, and I think they should. They won't because they don't want to rock the ship, I guess. But we are the only sport in the world that plays professional sport, plays amateur rules, which I, is very strange. I keep thinking that the only, I could see at Augusta, the Augusta National Tournament, to play the Masters, I could see them saying, there's a tournament ball, your manufacturers can make We'll that. make it, yeah. And we'll make it, it can have your logo on it, if you play titles, if you play TaylorMade, whatever it is, but to play in the, the Masters, you have to use this. The, this is the tournament ball, and I think they're the only one that the players would go for. Think about this. Golf, and I guess bowling, is that a sport or is that just a reason to drink beer, <laughs> are the only sports you actually bring your own ball to play yeah, with. Tennis, they, they, No, every sport, yeah. they provide the ball. They provide the ball for you. That's what you play with. That's another thing that makes golf different. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just giving you a fact. This is the way it is. You, you can make your own decision on it. Those of you listening, what you think is right or wrong. But that's a fact. Do you think that this argument that, that the, the golf courses have become obsolete, that they've got to be too long, what do you think that we, we could do without lengthening golf courses to make them harder for PGA Tour players? And very, very golfers? simple. Narrow the fairways, grow rough, and get them hard greens. 
That means you got to be in the fairway to to, to stop to the ball. On it. I mean, look look at the Masters now. I think I think the second cut they call it there is only like an inch and a quarter, well, inch it makes and three a big quarter. Difference going into it those totally things. changes the what the spin you could put on the ball. And they're pretty wide fairways at Augusta. I mean, I was just there last week. Even I didn't miss many of them with my little funky slap hook out there every now and then. But I mean, you know, it, it's you could make the golf courses difficult to play by narrowing the fairways, growing rough, and making the greens hard. And you don't have to change anything. The argument would be, well, then nobody would hit a driver. Well, where the hell does it say you got to hit, hit a driver in every hole? All I know is there's a scorecard with a box in it. It needs a number. And the only time anybody's going to even ask you what you did is if you shot a good score. Other than that, nobody gives a damn. So that's how you do it. Now, the tour, I mean, they just hit it as far as they can because the rough doesn't exist. And if they wanted to make it tough, they I mean, you can go back and look at old films from the 40s and 50s at U.S. Opens, and some of them had four and five, six-inch yeah, rough. I mean, rough. well, like one, yeah, way. same thing in the old Open Championships. I mean, you were dead. You were chipping out, you know, so there should be a penalty on uh, for missing a fairway, and should you should get a, a plus for hitting it in the fairway. But the Tour doesn't do that. Now, one of the arguments would be the, the average person would rather see birdies and eagles than they would double bogeys and bogeys. I agree with that. It's more exciting. But if you this thing that you need to make an 8,000-yard golf course, you know, everybody says, well, of course, old courses aren't any good. Well, look, at when we play the U.S. Open at Marion that uh, Justin Rose won, that's not a very long golf course, but it's a very good golf course. And it was set up difficult, and it, they didn't shoot that far under par. Are there any golf courses um, that are in your favorites that you'd love to see a major championship go to that you think would be a, a great test? Well, a lot of those are great old clubs that the members don't give a damn. They, they don't want a whole bunch of people running around their course. You know, I, I like older golf courses. Obviously, I grew up at Wingfoot, so I love Wingfoot. And, and we have the two best golf courses. We have the best 36 holes in one club any place in the world because the East course is every bit as good as the West. You just don't know about it because we play all the tournaments on it. I like old courses. I love Cypress Point. It's not the hardest course in the world. San Francisco Golf Club, one of the great clubs in the country, old school have to walk, no cell phones, no rangefinders. Those are the rules. You play golf. Uh, I like Seminole. I have the Walker Cup there, and, you know, they've, they've built some new tees and stuff to try and make it longer. But that that course, uh, <coughs> excuse me, Seminole, for as good as it is and as, as fast as the greens get, <coughs> without wind is easy. You know, it's just the way it is. Uh, so I think we play great courses. I think the PGA finally has started to play great courses for their championship. Where in the past they didn't seem to do that. U.S. Open has always done that thing that makes the the, the British uh, Open is, is such a good co- championship because they have so many good links courses. I actually wouldn't wouldn't bother me if they always played the Open Championship at St Andrews. Do the same thing. Yeah, like like Augusta. like Augusta does. I mean, the thing that makes. The Masters so special for people watching it is it's always at the same place. You can literally think about how many guys you've seen hit in the water on 12. I played there a couple days ago. We get to the 12th hole and, and somebody says to me, what do you enjoy the most about playing Augusta? So I play there about once a year. I have friends I put their members I go with. And I said, the thing I enjoy the most is I get to walk to the 12th screen because during the tournament you can't go over there. As a matter of fact, I had my good friend Dr. Bragg with me this year, he never played there, and I said, "Okay, wait." We hit it on the. He had, a, he had a beautiful shot the other day. He hit it to about 12 feet. I thought he was going to make two, and he lipped it out. And I said, "Now you're going to get the treat." He goes, "What's that?" I said, "You're going to get to walk over the Hogan Bridge to get to the green." And when you get to the green, look way back and look at the spectators, even though there's not any there. So you've quit traveling on tours, or anything that you miss about not traveling anymore and being on the PGA Tour? Well, I don't miss travel. I don't <laughs> miss the airports and staying in hotels and, eat, and eating in restaurants. My God, yeah, I left in, in 2019. I miss the majors and the heat of the battle because I've always had so many good players. I've always had somebody that, you know, I've had, had a chance to win. I've had guys win a lot of them, and I've always had guys in the heat with a chance to win. I like the rush that they get and the rush I get because I'm involved, and I kind of like that. But I still work with a lot of them. Just on a, they come to Vegas and see me when they need want to get another opinion and want to hear something. Yeah, so I, mean, I, I think last, I, last, I still keep my hand in the game. I think last year um, <clears throat> something happened to you that not a lot of people know. And um, you know, with Webb and Danielle, it's um, 
did, uh, Webb won the Varden Trophy for low scoring on mm -hmm. the PJ Tour, and Danielle won the Bear Trophy. Bear, it's called Bear Trophy. Yeah. And it's, I mean, to to have two players on the the men's and the and the ladies tour, you know, be the best, you know, scores and you know players and stuff like that. It's got to be precious. Yeah, they, they both both won the scoring average on their tours, and Webb Simpson, who's just a wonderful human being and a great guy, he he only comes and sees me about three times a year. Now he'll send me his film and stuff. We talk about it. He did a wonderful thing. He had a replica of the Varden Trophy made for me. And it's big and it's heavy, and I have it in my office in my house, and it's pretty cool just to look at it it's got a name on it you know and it's it's the reason we do what we do and the joy we get is just seeing guys play good you know I get that same joy if, if I have some 18 handicap in one of my golf schools and he's never broken 90 before and he, I get a uh, email from him or something hey I shot 85 today I can't thank you enough and you know and so on and so forth but I miss the rush of a major with a guy trying to win Lastly, you've you know you've had such an amazing career. When you look back on it, you know almost fifty years of, of teaching and you know so much success on the PGA Tour with players and stuff like that. What are you most proud of, and and what are the memories that stand out for you? Uh, obviously, you know somebody asked me how many wins you had. I don't know. You know, two a lot. Two fifty, whatever. How many majors have you won? I don't know, eighteen. He doesn't, I haven't, he doesn't I haven't, know. But it's, I haven't, I haven't won any. I've had guys win a lot of them, but for me, the thing I'm most proud of, because nobody stays with you forever. That's just the way it is, and you, you can't get upset when someone leaves you because it's maybe they think they've learned all they can learn from you. They want to go to someone else. I mean, I, I say all the time, I've taken five guys to number one in the world, and four of them fired me. So it's you know, it's just that's just what it is. I think the thing I'm most proud of with tour players is there hasn't been anybody that came to me that when they left, they were worse than when they showed up. They've all been better. They all got better while we were together. And I, I think I'm the, the most proud of that. And do you think, you know, even as you're, as you said, you're getting closer to 80, do you think you'll keep teaching and still want to stay active or are you going to try and shut things down? Oh, I've shut it down a lot, but I still teach. I love to teach. You know, I, I have a saying when I play with my buddies at home. I said, all right, guys, we're playing golf today. I'm not giving any damn lessons. I said, we're going to drink our beer and we're going to have some fun and harass everybody. And we'll go about four or five holes and one of them will be playing bad in my stock line. It's okay. I can't take it any longer. Here's what you need to do. And so I'll always teach, Claude. I love to teach. I, I just like helping people. Good to talk to you. Thanks. I love you. Obviously, I think you can see that you know my dad just loves to help people and loves to teach and I think that was really really a unique kind of insight into kind of his thoughts um, and some amazing topics that he was able to get to and um, you know certainly a special thing for me so I hope everybody enjoyed that you know first of all thanks everybody who's listened to the podcast I mean we started this we didn't know how it was going to go we're on episode four everybody that I've talked to seems to like it so I'm going to continue to take questions. You can go over to Instagram every week and, you know, ask questions. And we've had some good ones this week. Had someone ask, what is the most important skill as a coach or as an instructor? Um, that's one of the things I think I learned most from, you know, spending so much time with my dad in that um, the message sometimes can get lost in the messenger. And I think to be a great coach and a, a great instructor, you have to have, you know, unbelievable communication skills. And certainly one of the things that my dad as imparted wisdom on me and talked to me about was, you know, find, you know, multiple different ways to say what you want to say, because you never know what's going to click with a player. You never know, you know, what you're going to say. So he always kind of challenged me to try and say things differently, you know, one topic, but try and say it in five or six different ways. So to me, one of the amazing things about um, him and I think to be a great instructor and to be a great coach is you have to have a very, very good set of communication skills. And, you know, he's always said to me, it's sometimes what you don't say that is as important as what you do say. So I think communication's huge, huge to be a great instructor. Best way to get handicapped down from a 10 to low single figures. Believe it or not, it's my opinion that the easiest way to get your handicap down from a 10 to kind of low single fingers is to make more pars and bogeys. Uh, everybody thinks you need to make more birdies. You need to make more eagles. You need to hit it closer. 
But really, at the end of the day, um, and Trevor Immelman, I thought in, in our last podcast, did an unbelievable job at talking about this scorecard management, taking the big numbers off your scorecard. So if you're 10 handicap and you want to get down to be a one or a two, if over the course of 365 days, um, for the course of the year that you were playing, if you're a 10, the way that the easiest way to, to, to get your handicap down is just to stop making big numbers, stop making the doubles, stop making the triples, realizing that bogeys are good. Um, you know, if you're a 10 handicap, you should take the same mantra that, um, you know, Brooks Kepka has talked about it for a long time. And in the time that I spent with Brooks, we always talked at majors about just staying away from making double bogeys. And, you know, a great example last week, Dustin Johnson has a chance to win the golf tournament and makes triple bogey. He made a triple bogey and a double bogey. He finished the week eight under, 11 under won the tournament, and he made a double and a triple. That's five shots. And if he just turns those doubles and triples into bogeys, he probably has a legit chance to win the golf tournament. He didn't need to make any more birdies. He didn't need to birdie down the stretch. He just didn't need to make a double bogey. If the double bogey becomes a bogey, he saves one shot. If the triple becomes a bogey. He's saving shots. So I think that's one of the easiest ways to improve your scores, to lower your handicap. Aim more for the middle of every green. Don't go flag hunting. I think too many players get caught up by trying to chase pins, trying to hit it to spots they don't need to. I think we're all kind of influenced by golf on TV. You see somebody on a par three, tucked pin, they try and go right at it and hit it close. But not everybody can do that. So um, scorecard management, and course management, I think, is is massively, massively important. This is a good one. What's the best advice you could give to a 15-year-old trying to become a PGA Tour pro? Well, if you think that you're going to work hard and really want to be number one in the world, and you think that other people don't want that, um, I think you're crazy. Um, I think it's kind of a prerequisite. If you're 15 years old, you have to realize that everybody's going to work hard, that everybody wants to be good. And, you know, it's it's finding your own game, finding and, and dominating your own swing. And again, I, I keep talking about it. Trevor Immelman on the last podcast talked a lot about owning your own swing, trying to figure out as a young player what kind of makes you tick, trying to figure out where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are, and, and try and develop a strength. To get to the PGA Tour, in my opinion, you have to be great at something. And it doesn't really matter what that is. It can be great at short game. It can be great at putting. It could be great at reading greens. It could be great at playing in the wind. It could be great at making decisions, great driving. You have to be great at something. And I think a lot of players struggle as they get older and, and they're trying to play professionally because they don't really have that strength. And if you look at all the players inside the top 10 in the world, you can kind of go through them and, and look at what strengths they have. So if you're a young player, if you're 15 years old and you have aspirations to be on the PJ Tour, learn how to play the game of golf as opposed to learning how to practice the game of golf. I think that's really, really important. One of the obvious questions with it being U.S. Open Week, being San Diego, Phil Mickelson having won the PGA, can he win the elusive U.S. Open, complete the career Grand Slam? Um, he's been so close. He's from San Diego. He grew up playing here. I think it would be one of the biggest stories ever in golf if Phil could get it done. And after what he did at Keough Island, I sure as hell wouldn't put anything past him. Um, it's a golf course he likes. It's a golf course he knows. He'll sleep in his own bed. Uh, he, The pressure, will the pressure get to him? I don't think pressure gets to Phil anymore after what he did at Keough Island. You know, when you win a major championship, and, and Dave Phillips talked about it on um, episode two of our podcast where he talked about how the fact that, and we talked about how, Phil beat the best players in the world, one of the best players in the world in Brooks Kepka, who has been a major specialist over the last four or five years. He didn't beat him by being a crafty veteran. He beat him by being, you know, an alpha male like everyone else, by hitting bombs, by outdriving players and, and playing the modern game. He hasn't he hasn't played the old school veteran. He's played the modern game and then he's got the old school veteran stuff. So um, I'd love it. I'd love to see Phil in the mix come Sunday. So um, you never know what you're going to get with Phil. He could he could win. He could contend. He could miss the cut. And I think that's 
what everybody really, really likes about Phil Mickelson. So that was a lot of the questions that we got. Um, what's the most difficult U.S. Open setup I've ever coached at? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, Oakmont. I think Oakmont is unbelievably difficult. It's just such a hard golf course. I think all the majors, believe it or not, are difficult to coach at because as an instructor, you know, we're trying to help players kind of peak for four weeks a year. And, and it's a very, very arbitrary kind of thing. You know, there's a lot of things that kind of have to fall into place. So I think every major championship is 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 difficult to be an instructor at and be a coach at because, you know, there's there's so much pressure on the players to try and perform. And, uh, you know, it's 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 difficult. So uh, some great questions this week. Keep them coming. Um, really excited next week on the podcast to have Mike Wilbon, one of the most respected sports journalists in America. I was very lucky to, to meet him earlier this year, and it is a fascinating episode of the podcast. Mike talks a lot of subjects. He talks about Michael Jordan. He talks about his career as a journalist. He talks about Tiger Woods. He talks about how golf came late to him, what he likes about golf, what he doesn't like about golf. So next week's episode of Off Course with Claude Harmon, Mike Wilbon. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts.